Welcome to Insight, I'm Philippa Tolley, and this week, contaminated lands. New Zealand has thousands of toxic waste sites created by former factories, sawmills and agricultural chemical dumps, but until recently, little was being done to fix them up. The government did set up a national register to force the problem into the open, but seven years on, the subject has largely sunk from public view. This insight investigates the country's most poisoned places to find out what's holding back the cleanup. Running through the grassy Rangitaiki Plains near Whakatane, that are home to thousands of dairy cows, is a waterway that looks ordinary and serene. The Korpio Peo Canal was dug out a hundred years ago to drain these plains and stop them from flooding. There's even a few ducks. So you wouldn't guess it, but this canal has a dirty secret. It's ranked as the third most toxic site in the country. I'm Ian Telfer and this insight travels to some of the country's most toxic places to find out how well New Zealand's dealing with its industrial past and if it can ever hope to clean up these noxious sites. We are currently on Kopi Canal Road and we're just across from where the old uh, mill um, operated and discharged uh, its stormwater and other chemicals, uh, not that they knew that it was occurring, into the canal back in the day. And this is the $12 million canal? Yeah, you could call it that. Not quite that much, actually. No. How much no, is it? No, 10.2. Oh, sorry, I got it wrong. This is the 10.2 million dollar canal. That's right, yeah. Costs a lot of money to clean up dioxins and legacy issues. I'm being taken on a tour because the Korpiopio Canal is now home to one of this country's largest ever cleanups. The problem is the mud, which is shot through with a toxic family of chemicals, including dioxins which the World Health Organization says are among the most dangerous cancer-causing chemicals known. For half a century they poured into the canal along with chemical waste from the former New Zealand Forest Products timber mill. The cleanup's project manager, Brendan Love, says it was a different, less careful time. Look, having been on these sites um, and studied the history of the sites, uh, you know, chemicals made their way onto the ground, either through treated wood that was dripping, or leaks from systems and process lines. There were no consent conditions in place. And no one even knew dioxins actually existed back then. Um, we were importing pentachlorophenol into the country and in came the dioxin impurities as part of the process. So it wasn't until the 80s that they were actually identified. Swimming's forbidden here, as is the eating of eels, which had been a regular, traditional food source, especially for local Māori. Studies have found that people could eat no more than 300 grams of eel a month to be within safe limits, about the size of a small block of cheese. The solution is to suck 40,000 cubic metres of the mud out of the canal and onto paddocks using a suction pump, dredge and hoses. But the project hasn't all gone smoothly. The original plan to use trucks in an estimated 100,000 trips to shift the mud caused an outroar among the local community, forcing a complete rethink. The team did a trial of the suction last year and is now banking on an innovative method called bioremediation, using fungi and bacteria to eat up the dioxins. Brendan loves feeling hopeful. So where are we? So we're within um, a containment area which was set up for the dredging trial. 
and um, all that's left here now in this HDP lined area is is two of these large like shipping containers that are sealed. Inside of those are the two geo bags. They're very small ones. They only they only hold around six cubic metres of the sediment that we dredged out um, from this section of the canal back in October last year. But They've been dewatered, they've been inoculated with the fungi, they've had the trees planted in them, and by accounts, um, we just had an update two weeks ago, they've got really good fungal growth within those bags. If it goes well, this clean-up will be a good news story. But this is just one site. It's cost $10 million and 30 years to get to this point. A former Greenpeace toxics campaigner, Gordon Jackman, quantifies what he sees as the scale of the problem. I think it's stalled and under the radar. So there are a few things being done, like at the Kopiopi Canal in Fokatani, but then there are, we know, at least 30 other sites around there which very little has been done. In fact, that's sort of been ignored mostly now. Um, and likewise, like Rotorua or you know, any place has been a timber industry and then any big city, there are lots and lots of sites. If you look at the hail list for each regional district. There are hundreds of sites. Yeah, it's a very serious issue and it's appalling that nothing's being done. One person who knows better than anyone the effects of the dioxins in the Kupi Canal is Joe Harawera, who worked at the Fakatani timber mill for 29 years. He says he was poisoned by them. As I'm sitting here talking to you now, I've got 49.9 picograms per gram of the most dangerous chemical ever made by man in my system, right here. And I've had it here since I walked through that gates of that mill all those years ago. He believes the chemicals paralysed him. So over a period of six years, from 1992 to 19, 1998, I'd say, eh, I had to learn how to hold a knife and fork again. I had to learn how to walk all over again. Uh, in fact, I lost all my function to set my brain. You see, even my speech was a bit, uh, bit hazy daisy, eh? Sipping coffee at Natiawa's social and health centre, Joe Harawera tells me that although he's no longer paralysed, he's still in constant pain. Mr Harawera has been fighting to have the dangers of dioxin recognised for 33 years. He now coordinates a group of former timbermen called Sawmill Workers Against Poisons. They've been the subject of dozens of documentaries and magazine articles, leading to government recognition in 2010 and a dedicated health service. The government now estimates 10,000 sawmill workers at 800 mills were exposed to these chemicals, though Mr Harawira believes it could be as many as 22,000 people. Mr Harawira says he and the other workers were practically bathing in the dioxin-laden chemical PCP as they dipped all the timber in and out of the liquid. He's cheering for the canal clean-up. We're going through stage two of the Kopi Canal now, and that has really been the... Um the issue that's really been uh, keeping us in the, in the playing field, eh? Is that number one, the copy? At, at the moment, it's the number one because it's the one that's actually ticking all the boxes for us in terms of our health issues. Even though that we're, 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 our, our health issues are stuffed now, our whole focus now is on the preservation of the next generation. But he says it'll be just the beginning. I've driven about 15 minutes up into the hills above Whakatane, and I'm now walking along White Pine Bush Road. Now, 20 years ago, this was the scene of one of the country's few standoffs over contamination, after campaigners put signs along this road to highlight toxic sites. 
They'd drawn up a map of 36 sites where waste from that Fokatani mill was trucked in and dumped. It was wood shaving soaked in dioxin-infused PCP that was used to preserve the timber. Now, one of the sites is here, an old stream bed running right through the middle of Kim Manson's property. Mr Manson says he didn't realise at first that it meant the end of his dream. Start off with a small farm, you know, build it up, build a house, sell that and buy a bigger property, um, do the same sort of thing to, you know, improve the block and then sell that and buy a bigger farm. But um, since we've bought this, everything come to a halt with this contamination issue. Um, it's just become unsellable. Um, and um, the dream that I thought that I would have um, for my future and everybody, you know, families, um, it's just faded away, you know, it's just we're in the realisation that it's um, just not going to happen. A full third of the Manson's 40 acres is affected, though the amount of contamination varies. Kim Manson says he and his wife were gutted because they thought they'd been careful. We investigated as much as we thought we could, asked um, everybody associated with the, the land, the owners, the... Um, uh, we, we knew that there was sawdust put in. We approached the company that did it, and they said there was not a problem. We, when we um, bought it, you have to you know, apply. Um, and nobody said anything about any contamination. It was just a, a full block, yeah. And so we thought, oh, it was great. You know, it grows good grass. Um, but, you know, a few years after we bought the property, um, the signs went up up the road, the skull and crossbones. Yeah, Greenpeace turned up um, and then uh, council got involved and, and then a real headache started. The Mansons have a letter from the Bay of Plenty Regional Council showing it was aware of the contamination in 1992, four years before they bought. And Mr Manson says he's still angry they weren't warned. He says the council's tried to force them to take responsibility for the dump site area, to pay for covering it over each year and to not build on it or plant crops but he's refused, and the whole thing's now in limbo. So if there are 36 sites like this around the district, why focus on one waterway? Brendan Love from the Kopiopio Canal Project says cleaning that up will get rid of about 80% of all the dioxins from the mill, because it was the main drain. And Joe Harawera says work started on the other sites too now, in the form of a contaminated sites working group. And a link up with the Health Research Council to fund the studies and remediation plans for each site. But Kim Manson says he doubts his property will ever be cleaned up. I didn't think it would ever happen, you know. With the cost, uh, how much um, remediation, uh, the cost to do that, who fronts the bill? In doing that, we basically uh, render our land unusable, so we couldn't earn any living off it. Also, the, you know, the trouble that it would cause for every other landowner that's got fill on their property, where does that go? You know, it's gonna, it's not gonna bode well. Look a little wider, and it quickly becomes apparent wood waste is but one of many types of contamination that's left behind toxic sites needing attention. Two years ago, the Ministry for the Environment started keeping a remediation priority list of New Zealand's top ten most urgent sites. They include old gas works and fertilizer factories and ship repair yards. But at the top, holding places number one and two on the list, are two old West Coast mines, Prohibition and Alexander. 
At Waiuta near Reefton, there's a ghost town where 3,000 people once lived. It all stopped in 1951. Before that, gold mining was a lucrative but fraught occupation. In a recording made in 1984, a former West Coast miner, Jack Crossman, described the physical toll often inflicted on those chasing the glittering dust. There was Wingy. I forget what the rest of his name was. His nickname was Wingy, mainly because he had one arm. And then there was the bosun, and he had one leg, wooden leg. And then there was um, Spence, I think he one eye Spence, they called him. And then there was the miners' complaint, which did things more uh, The miners, yes, the big thing always that caught them all, whether they were lucky to dodge accidents, of course, was tysis, or miners' complaint, as it was called in those days. And uh, this was caused by the, by the uh, foul air for a start, and the dust. But today, these long-abandoned gold mines are being revisited, not for fortune, but an old hazard, arsenic. An Otago University geology professor, Dave Craw, was the first to raise the alarm when he visited Prohibition Mine about 10 years ago. We were looking around. I had a student with, with me, Laura Haffert, who uh, wanted to project. And we were looking around over there. We knew that uh, old mine sites were uh, of interest. And so we were looking there and uh, we saw a, a site that looked a bit suspicious. And so we took some samples, analysed them, and uh, were rather disturbed by what we saw. Suspicious uh, how? There was a, a processing plant there and uh, there was no vegetation, very high rainfall. And uh, as it turns out, the, uh, the site is, is quite acid over the, the whole area around the, the processing site. And, and that's why the plants won't grow. And as a related thing, there's, there's a whole lot of arsenic. Very, very, very high arsenic. How much arsenic? Oh, some, some of the materials, 40% arsenic, which is a huge amount. Professor Craw says the arsenic was a byproduct of the hard rock mining process which involved roasting the crushed rock in a furnace to get the gold out. He says the miners were rough and piles of arsenic crystals were just swept out and have been lying on the surface around the old mine site since. The mines now deemed to be one of the most polluted sites in the world, with arsenic levels 5,000 times the safe limit. But at the time, Professor Craw was unaware of the danger. We did have our picnic lunch sitting on the site. Do you regret that? Uh, well, I wouldn't do it again. Dave Craw says Canada has a problem thousands of times larger with its giant mine at Yellowknife, which is expected to cost at least a billion dollars to clean up. Here the mine cleanup's much smaller at about three million dollars, but it's proving a headache nonetheless for the Department of Conservation. At the dock office in Hokitika, the West Coast manager, Mark Davies, says after years of planning and delay, the team expects to start taking the worst stuff to a special landfill next month, then burying and capping the rest on site. InSight tried to get close to the site on a rainy west coast afternoon, but it's been heavily fenced for the past three years, and Doc said it would be too difficult to meet the health and safety requirements. Mark Davies says Doc's excited about getting the site open to the public, but admits it won't be a place to camp and time restraints will be in place. Our goal is by this Christmas, we'll have this back open to the visitors. Um, we are going to put in a bit more of a formal car park. We are going to 
um, and so that people park you know and we the, even with taking away the most high hazardous um, areas we are still going to have some areas that are fenced off um, but we're going to create a walking track so people can walk through the site and we're going to have some interpretation and we're going to say to people please you know don't stop and sit on the ground and have your lunch but hey enjoy yourself and the sort of key performance standards that we have set and we've got um, also advice on that from um, specialists is that people all ages will be safe there for an hour or so. Number two on the government's top ten sites list is the nearby and much smaller Alexander mine which will be cleared in the same project. So there's progress now on the top three cases on the government's list. But Insights learned that proper cleanups are yet to start on those on the rest of the list. And in three of the ten cases, the safety work's been parked indefinitely by the regional councils responsible. However, there are some signs of movement beginning in others, and the government says it expects the pace to pick up later this year. Number four on the list is Port Nelson's Corwell Slip, an old boat maintenance yard. Two weeks ago, the Minister for the Environment, Nick Smith, announced the government's putting in half of the $8.3 million needed to clean that up, and that'll start soon. Right, I'm back in my hometown, Dunedin, and at the site of number 10 on the toxic list, a big underground tank on Hillside Road in South Dunedin, just down from the area's main shopping strip. The tank here contains a million litres of tar and contaminated water, and it could dump this cargo in an earthquake. But it looks like there might be a plan here too after years of inaction. The Dunedin Council is hoping to get money from the government's site remediation fund to start assessing the risk and start planning the clean-up later this year. But there are some contaminated sites that have been left to languish. And any resolution seems to be getting harder as time goes by. Number five on the list is an old factory near Huntley in the Waikato. And it's quickly becoming an example of how wickedly complex these cleanups can be. It's called the Rotowaro Carbonisation Plant. Probably the biggest issue we're dealing with is really dealing with the health and safety of people working on that site. The site hasn't been visited for over 10 years, so nobody's actually been actually right on the site. It's covered with gorse at the moment surrounding the whole site, so we're going to have to clear some tracks to actually get onto the site. And we've got that issue of standing water around a lot of the infrastructure and buildings and tanks. Jonathan Caldwell, a land scientist at the Waikato Regional Council's leading the plant's clean-up. For 50 years, Rotowaro turned coal waste into briquettes and other products. But since 1987, two tanks containing 350,000 litres of tar and water have been sitting in two metres of water, slowly degrading. Dr Caldwell says they could collapse soon, dumping tar into the adjacent Ararua stream. He says it'd be easier if they could just clear the site, but though the buildings are derelict and toxic, they're historically significant, and the project's duty-bound to try to save them all. There's a lot of asbestos from the building materials that was used uh, for um, cladding the building, lagging of pipes and things, so that's a real issue around um, an airborne air contaminant. People breathe in that asbestos fibres. There's certainly a lot of... Um, 
toxic sludge and contaminants around the base and around the foundations of the buildings. There's another complexity, isn't there, which you haven't talked about yet, which is heritage. Yes, so Heritage New Zealand have um, placed a classification, um, type 1 classification, on that those buildings and actually um, the tanks themselves. So the carbonisation plant is actually the last remaining example of its type of in the world still remaining. So now the Waikato region faces the daunting task of trying to clean up a building so unsafe no one can go on site, with tar tanks ready to fail, and all the time it'll have to keep every part intact to meet the heritage requirements. It's all adding up to long time delays and a much heftier bill, which will certainly be millions and even tens of millions from the public purse. If that wasn't all bad enough, Jonathan Caldwell says even the ownership of the land's a problem. The land that the carbonisation plant was built on had always been leased to the carbonisation plant company and the owner of that land died back in 1937 and since then it's been, uh, the lease has been carried on um, by a, in a deceased estate which has been administered by public trust. Could it get more complicated? It gets very complicated. These are the situations that um, really cause a lot more work in trying to gear up for for a remediation process. Yeah, I mean, do you ever pinch yourself and think, God, I wish this was a bit simpler? Yes, <laughs> definitely. In these kinds of circumstances, is it worth even trying? Yes, says a long-time resident and restaurateur at Mapua, near Nelson, Vivian Fox. Though the clean-up of what was then the country's most toxic site is regarded by some as a terrible botch-up which released dioxin-contaminated dust, Ms Fox remains upbeat. She says Mapu has become a jewel in the crown. Well, I think that having cleaned the site up, it has made a huge difference in that the developers probably have felt more comfortable. As far as the community were concerned, I think we always wanted it cleaned up, but we just got on with our lives anyway, and, and we did fight it. There were some pretty tough people that were really um, fought very hard because it was a long fight to get it. Really, the bottom line was who was going to pay for it and how were they going to do it. Such cases show there's movement on the top ten list, but for each one that gets done, there are many that do not. Even some of the key projects on the top ten are stalled, and several are in the biggest cities. Two were in Wellington, the Tamome Stream, where there was an Exide battery factory, and the former Miramar Gasworks, which has since been demolished, tar-sealed and redeveloped. The Greater Wellington Regional Council told Insight the sites have a high level of contamination, but it has no plans to clean either one up. It says the stream is, quote, on a dead arm of the Hutt River, and the gasworks is now sealed and can't easily be treated. And in Auckland, the groundwater under Unahung has been badly polluted by copper from an old fertiliser plant for 30 years, causing a stream and shellfish on the Manukau Harbour to turn green. The council's been studying the problem since 1988 and has concluded it poses no immediate threat. It says the water feeds into the aquifer below where some of Auckland's drinking water is collected. On the streets of Onehunga, most locals told Insight they were oblivious to the problem. Never heard of it. Of course that's a concern, but um, it's nothing I would really know anything about. Yeah, I hate about it. Yeah. Is it a concern for you? Uh, yeah, it is more concern, but I'm not quite sure what, you know. Yeah, if you're still polluting the water, but 
They haven't heard anything about it, didn't even know there was a plant. The Minister for the Environment, Nick Smith, says the government's frustrated by Auckland Council's lack of action on the site, but realises it has bigger problems just coping with its rapid growth. When the national-led government first came to power in 2008, it struck a memorandum of understanding with the Green Party. That spurred a flurry of activity in which councils were made to collect lists of all the sites in their districts and begin to plan to fix or actively manage them by the end of last year. But the Ministry for the Environment's confirmed to Insight that the deadlines were last year dramatically pushed out and councils are now not required to act until 2030, effectively putting them off the table. Dr Smith says he makes no apologies for this. I would describe contaminated sites as one of New Zealand's uh, middle-level environmental challenges. Uh, my view, the issues of climate change, uh, issues of things like of clean, fresh water, uh, issues around oceans, uh, rank as a more important priority. Uh, but uh, New Zealand does have uh, some seriously contaminated sites, and the government's ambition is for us to be just consistently um, clocking our way through in a considered and sensible way the clean-up of those. Dr Smith says progress is not fast, but definitely has not stalled, though the system depends on regional councils doing their part. But the Green Party's toxic spokesperson, Catherine Delahunty, said she's appalled that this has slipped down the government's priorities again. Central government have a responsibility to be a lot stronger and not take their hands off and say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. The central government needs to say to regional councils that the Resource Management Act requires you to take responsibility for the toxic sites in your region and to clean them up. However, there are not just political reasons for the slowing of progress. There are some big practical obstacles too. A Massey University academic, Chris Anderson, who's trying to set up a national research centre into contamination, says there are more sites than anyone knows how to deal with, and New Zealand's just cleaning the tip of the iceberg. The Ministry for the Environment estimated in 1995 there were more than 8,000 potentially contaminated sites, of which 1,500 were high-risk sites. Ten years ago, the Ministry estimated the cost of cleaning them all up at billions of dollars. Dr Anderson says more keep turning up because they haven't been kept track of. Not all of them, no. I mean, if we've got an old sheep farm that stopped being a sheep farm back in the 50s or 60s, maybe knowledge of that site's gone. Uh, there's no evidence of, of infrastructure left behind to say where that site was. Uh, and, and this is where we, we get into a problem with, with land use change. And I think in, in New Zealand, our problems with contaminated sites are around land use change because when we go to build on bits of land, these days we have to check out for contamination. We have to make sure that land is safe. And if we happen to think, right, we've got a piece of land we're going to subdivide, we're going to build on it, if we go in and find that, oops, it was a sheep-dip site from 60 years ago, the whole game changes a bit. Um, all of a sudden there's quite a, a major remediation bill to bring that land up to safety standard before it can be developed. But Catherine Delahunty's partner, Gordon Jackman, who's an archaeologist and a former Greenpeace toxics campaigner, says cleaning up chemical sites must be more of a priority because it's like cleaning up our home. It's not a thing that you want to sort of blame lots of people about. It's more like a, a collective failure of all of us. It's hard, you know. Even cleaning up your own mess around at how in the house is is not the easiest thing, you know. <laughs> but it's sort of like housework on a on a national scale, and we just should get our act together.
In Whakatane, the campaigner Joe Harawira is not giving up either. He says he's going to make the government recognition he's fought so hard for turn into lasting good. This is my version of that recognition. They've given us a big carrot, you see. We're still nibbling at that carrot. Joe Harawira says in Māori terms, his own people Ngāti Awa say, if there's something wrong with the land, there's something wrong with us. I'm Ian Telfer, and that's Insight for this week. Additional material for this program was supplied by Tracy Neal, Belinda McCammon and Tom Furley. If you'd like to send any feedback, our email address is insight at radionz.co.nz and we're on Twitter at InsightRNZ. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Phil Benge.